You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello everyone and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi T. Jacobson with NRM Streamcast. And we'll spend our time talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. You can always send your questions and comments to our mailbag at letstalktorahgmail.com. And of course I will answer as many as I can. So Passover is almost here. Today is Thursday. Tonight we're going to search for bread. Tomorrow is Friday. Um, but Passover starts Saturday night. Um, so with all the things happening, of course we have to talk Passover. But it, it hit me today. There is an obsession with bread and bread products. Okay, we're not going to be allowed to have any bread products for the next week and a half or whatever, eight days and, and the day before, and we're cleaning. So, therefore, we must have all kinds of cakes and danishes and pizza, all the stuff. For six months, I don't touch these things. And all of a sudden, a day and a half, I eat more than who knows what because I don't know why. It's like part of what happens to us when we get close to Passover. We know we're not going to have any bread products. Therefore, we must vacuum into our bodies as much bread products as possible. And uh, maybe one day I'll figure it out. Completely not necessary, but it seems to happen. So at this point in Jewish homes around the world, um, if I was obsessed with having my piece of bread... um, the mothers in the house, and fathers help too, don't get me wrong, uh, but the mothers are the generals taking uh, charge, and the house will be cleaned top to bottom. Cleaned officially, we're searching for bread. Sometimes you can't tell because they turn into spring cleaning. It's not spring cleaning. We're just cleaning out our homes to make sure there is no bread or bread products to be found. And the question really is why? So before I get into why, let me tell you what's not the reason, even though it is fascinating. So um, I must have found this a couple years ago. I found it again. So Clorox, everyone knows Clorox, household name in the cleaning industry. So they they had done a, it says here, a multifaceted study about cleaning in general. Okay, survey of 2,000 people, American adults, which found that those who enjoyed the act of cleaning were 25% happier. That's interesting. People who keep a clean home are not only happier, but more relaxed and focused. Okay. Children in a cleaner home study more and show greater empathy. That one, I don't know why. But as it says, furthermore, those in a spruced-up house, um, it seems as long as the house stays clean... Um, it says here, for each extra hour of cleaning, the the level of happiness went up 53%. I don't know how they figured out these numbers, but I don't care what the numbers are. If it's anything, I would think it's worth it. Regular cleaning associated with other positive health outcomes. Well, look how clean people have tried to be over the last year with corona. 
and uh, with all the corona stuff, but I don't know if any flu went around. Barely any strep went around. It was, like, interesting. So, yes, we were dealing with corona, but it just seemed with the children they didn't get sick as often, which is interesting. Um, there's improved relaxation, heightened focus, better sleep. You have to see these numbers over here. They're so big, I, I don't even, even believe them. Increased productivity. Um, furthermore, 60% of the parents said their kids studied better. I believe that completely because personally, I my classroom is so clean. Um, I don't leave papers on the floor. You're not allowed to drop papers on the floor. I make sure your notebooks are everything. All the papers are put into a binder and notebook. Um, if there's loose papers coming out of your cubby, either you clean them or I clean them. If I clean them, they end up in the garbage can. My desk, I'm always making sure it's clean. Everything's clean. And it's so clean that they, we just learn. We just study. It's a beautiful thing. Um, okay, so all that's beautiful, which was not my point for today, but I found it. I thought it was interesting. So cleanliness, what we're doing with cleaning, has tremendous benefits, but that is not why we're cleaning for Passover. So it's interesting. Um, there's there's a, a fascinating law when it comes to bread products over Passover. And that is, well, let's take it, let's go all the way back. There is a concept, many of us are familiar, meat and milk. We do not mix meat and milk. And if you were to have a whole soup, I don't know, a meat soup, and you'd pour in a glass of milk, so that whole thing is going in the garbage. We do not cook meat and milk together. However, and I am not giving you the details completely, so let's not um, run around making any official laws. You'll ask your, as we say, your local Orthodox rabbi. But um, if you had a huge vat of chicken soup and a drop of milk, you know, spritzed into the chicken soup, it's no problem. Why? Because we have this concept of nullification. When, in general, when there's 60 times more of, of one product over another, so that secondary um, product, whatever it is, meat, milk, doesn't matter, is nullified. It's as if it's not there, it doesn't give any taste. Again, if it's a spice and it gives taste, we have different rules. I, I don't want to over-focus on the, on the law, I just want the point. So the point is there is this concept, if we have something forbidden, something not forbidden, it gets mixed up, there's... There are times um, that everything is what we call bottle, is null and void, except for bread products on Passover. On, on Passover, even a minute amount will make everything forbidden. Everything. No, no mixing at all of any type crumbs, nothing, into the Passover food. We are very, very careful, or the factories, if they have that stamp uh, that says it's kosher, they are massively careful, and they're forever washing their hands and cleaning counters and cleaning stuff. They don't want anything around that would leave any trace of bread products. So the question is, why? Like, why is there such a big deal? And, and, and according to the regular rules, we shouldn't care. And all of a sudden, here we do care. What changed? What's different about Passover and, and what we call leavened bread, but bread products, again, not matzah, right? 
that unleavened bread. But why, why, do we, why do we have, again, the word obsession, right? Why do we make ourselves so crazy about bread that even the minutest amount is a problem? So there's a famous Radvaz. The Radvaz says that when we're searching for bread, we are not just searching for bread. Bread, interesting in the Zohar, in Kabbalah, bread is always representative of, of evil, of the evil inclination, of bad, while the matzah, the unleavened bread, is always referenced symbolic to good, that my good inclination. So therefore, when I am running around my house and I am searching for bread, it's really just a lesson for me. The lesson is that any evil, anything not so good inside of me, has to be rooted out. So by me making myself crazy on every crumb, it's going to put into my psyche, hello, it's not just the bread. Of course I have to go get rid of all the bread. That is part of Passover. No bread, right? We're not changing that fact. But not only must I get rid of the bread outside, but that re- what it represents, the evil that may lurk inside of me, I got to root that out also. And now that leads to a fascinating thought. That was beautiful. Um, I always like to buy a new Haggadah. There's always new Haggadahs coming out. I've been in people's houses that collect them. They have like, I don't know, 40, 50 Maxwell House Haggadahs. I mean, there, there are collectors, of course, there's people who collect a Haggadah from, you know, two, three, four hundred years ago. They're beautiful. But I like all the new stuff. So um, I bought one which was more, more Hasidic. More uh, had more uh, holy stuff in it, so to say. And I've been going through it. I'm enjoying it because I like to prepare beforehand because the night of Passover, there's no time. That, we got the kids around and family around. There's no time for me to start, uh, you know, enjoying my personal Haggadah. Anyways, my son-in-law comes, and a lot of times he likes to buy me a Haggadah, and he's bought me some beautiful ones. So he says today, I, got, I, I figured you out. I got it right. I bought the same Haggadah that you have out on the shelf. All right, so maybe he'll return it. So um, get me something else. But um, anyways, so he says like this. In this concept, he says, what do we say? Everybody's familiar, the four questions. I hope you're all familiar. So, of course, the first of the four questions that the child will ask is, um, all nights we eat bread, or matzah, right? Leaven or unleaven. But tonight on Passover, we only eat bread. So in a, in a Holy Spirit following the concept that we have uh, just been talking about, he says like this. The, before Passover, my job is to root out any evil, anything inside of me. That evil is that bread. However, once we hit Passover... That's all in the past. Passover is to help me focus on the future, my relationship with God. It says uh, Passover is also a time where God forgives. My, uh, my uh, daughter-in-law's grandfather calls me, always calls me when it's a good time for prayer. The Passover night by the Seder is a famous time for prayer. It's a time where God forgives us. So similar, by the way, to Yom Kippur. The difference is that in preparing for Yom Kippur, we are in awe. We are in fear of God. 
While the preparation for Passover, we are in love with God. So in my preparation for Passover, I got to get rid of all the evil. Get rid of all that bread. But once I hit Passover itself, forget about it. No more bread. No more evil. We're not talking about it. We don't want to hear about it. We are marching forward and, and creating a new, a new and a new relationship with God based on love. That is what we're doing. So this cleaning process, all the beautiful things I told you from Clorox, very nice and fine and dandy, but this cleaning process is to prepare us for our upgraded new relationship which you'll have with God based on love. And a relationship based on love, we all know that you can't compare a relationship based on love and based on fear, right? Children love their parents. They can have a beautiful relationship. Some people have relationships of fear. There's no relationship. So that is what we're looking to accomplish the night of the Seder. So with that in mind, I saw an interesting story. In the 1930s, um, as World War II was starting to get cooking, so Rebbe Chano Wasserman had a school in Baranovich in Poland. Um, I think it was in Poland. And he had come to America to help raise funds. So he was, uh, eventually he went back, even though he knew how bad things were and people begged him to stay in America. He said he had to be with his school, he had to be with his students. He went back and he, and he was killed um, during the war. So he goes to one of his old students, must have emigrated to America, become a successful businessman, not very religious, but a successful businessman. And the student says, oh, Rabbi Wasserman, how can I help you? So he says, you know, my coat, my, my long jacket, the button is loose. Could you sew my button? You have a button factory here. Maybe you could replace the button. So the student says, come on. You, you, you didn't come all the way to America. You didn't waste your time to visit my factory so I could fix your button. Yeah, yeah, I, I came here to fix my button. Yeah, please, please fix my button. Come on, come on, who, who are we fooling over? No, no, I, I really, really want you to fix my button. Okay, you want to fix a button. He gets the stuff, gets the buttons, fix it, patches it all up, no problem. He says, now, come on, you're playing with me. He says, if you want to know what, what I want... So this is where I'm staying. Come visit me tonight. Okay. So later that night, the student comes to his old teacher, this Rabbi Wasserman, and he says, okay, I'm here. So you know and I know that the purpose of your visit was not to fix your button. That's ridiculous. So Rabbi Wasserman said back to him, you're right. I obviously did not come to fix a button. Fixing buttons, if that's what life is all about, that's ridiculous. Now, don't get me wrong. I had an uncle, I think, who sold buttons. Um, he wanted me, he thought that'd be a good business for me. I don't know why. But in any case, he says, you too, my dear student, you didn't come to this world to make buttons. You can make money making buttons. That's fine. You can make money running your factory. That's fine. But that is not your purpose. You need to search and find your purpose. Torah study, good deeds, being kind, whatever your purpose is. But you got to search. So continuing in our concept, what we're starting with, it's our, it's, a, it's our theme at least for this segment. 
Yeah, we're talking about searching for bread. I'm searching for the evil within me. I'm getting rid of that evil within me. I'm getting ready to build my relationship with God. That's what I'm searching for. All our pre-Passover searching and preparation is to figure out what my purpose is. And first things first, I got to get my relationship with God set up straight. I got to know where I'm going and not just to... uh, to uh, go get my buttons fixed. That is not what life is going to be all about. Okay. So I have a few minutes um, for this segment still. So um, I figure it's important, and hopefully this uh, show will be up and out and ready to go before Passover for anybody who needs a last-minute primer. But... You gotta know the story. I was studying with somebody last night. We were we were studying a book called the Mesilas Yesharim from the Ramchal, um, the pathway of the of the just or of the straight. And he said, and in his introduction, and this is what we're talking about. Um, in his introduction, he says that uh, everything I say in this book, there's really nothing new. You really know everything I'm going to teach you, but you choose to ignore it. Your nature allows you to ignore things that you think are obvious. And since you ignore them, you just move on with life. Because when you need to remember these things, you forget about them. But then he says, even though I just wrote, that I'm not going to be teaching you anything new. And you know everything and you have to review it. If you go through my book and you don't see anything that helps you, it's because you didn't study my book enough. You got to do it again and again and again. And as you continually study my book, this is Ramchal talking in his introduction, a most beautiful, famous introduction. As you continue to review, you're going to get it. In other words, and he explains, he says, intellectually, you understand how a person is supposed to behave, how a person is supposed to act, how a person is supposed to build a relationship with God. But your brain hasn't connected with your heart. It's a very big distance between the brain and the heart for many of us. So by continuously repeating over and over and over and over again, so it's going to go from your brain to your heart, and then you'll become the person that you're supposed to become. So says the Ramchal in his introduction, and really, really, um, it's not new, his concept. Um, He was in the 1700s, but we've been doing this for thousands of years. right? We tell over the Passover story. The point of telling over the Passover story and our, and our exodus from Egypt, our slavery and our exodus and the miracles and our getting to Mount Sinai, the, it's not just the knowledge that we need to know what God did. Because, yeah, a lot of people say, come on, I heard this story last year. I saw the movie. I know this story already. That's not the point. The point is not to just know the story. The point is to get the story to transfer from your intellect, from your brain into your heart. That only comes with repetition. Therefore, even if you don't have any big, you know, deep thoughts by the, um, by the Seder, but just repeating the story over and over and over again is what we're trying to accomplish over here. And that's what will happen. 
you know, my kids know my stories. They like me to repeat the stories, and, and I repeat them. And I, I don't know if I come up with that many new things. Sometimes for some of my son-in-laws, my sons, they want something intelligent. So we, we, we take care of them also. But the main focus of the evening, of the Seder, is to repeat the story. And the more we repeat the story and believe the story and feel the story, the more it'll go from our brains into our heart. And that's what we need to accomplish. That is the purpose of the evening. And if you miss that purpose, if you're just, you know, rushing through so you can have, you know, your brisket to get get through to have a nice family dinner, so you missed it, right? And you'll continue to miss it. So let's quickly, quick, quick overview about four minutes. Let's see if we can get through in a, in a simple version what's going on. So Jacob and his family moved down to Egypt. Joseph has become king. The family will move down. Joseph will take care of them. And for the next many, many, many years, the Jewish people are in their own area. Um, they're living by themselves. They can study. They can do Torah. They can do whatever they want. Because Joseph's first in charge, and there's other brothers still alive. But eventually, the 12 tribes die out. Even the 70 soul that came down, they also die out. And now the Jewish people is a little bit on their own. And we become slaves. We were tricked, but that's for another day. Um, the Egyptians did not like us. They hated us. They turned us into slaves, and it was a, it was a terrible Slavery. It was. It went from being slaves to starting to actually killing babies. It was like open season. You want to kill a Jew? No one's going to stop you. It's not like someone's going to bring you to court. You were slaves. You were like cattle. You were. They could do whatever they wished, and that was the life we went through. In the meanwhile, Moses is raised in the palace. Moses has to escape Egypt for many, many years. Um, it gets to a point where it's impossible for the Jewish people, and they now begin to pray to God. Once they get to the point where they're starting to pray to God, God says, okay, now I'll take care of you. God meets Moses by the burning bush. God tells Moses, you got to go down and take out the Jewish people. They have a conversation for a week. Moses doesn't want to go, but he goes anyways. Moses goes down, he meets Aaron, and then they begin their conversations with the Pharaoh. And they warn the Pharaoh, the Pharaoh's not really too uh, interested, and then the ten plagues will begin. So there's obviously ten plagues. There's a purpose in each of those plagues for us and for the Egyptians. The first three plagues were to make sure you know there's a God, right? The blood and frogs and, and, and lice, each of these plagues demonstrated there's a God, right? Blood, all the water turned to blood. The frogs, because there's frogs all over the place, you, you can't sleep, you can't open your mouth, your food gets ruined. The lice, of course, all the dust turned into bugs. All the, yeah, all the dirt turns into bugs, you can't make bricks no more. That's the first group. Then you have the second group where you have the wild animals and the plague and uh, the boils. So now already we're learning that God differentiates. You know, it's not only is there a God, but God runs the world. He knows exactly what's going on in this world, and he takes care of it. Therefore, the wild animals could only go where God said. They didn't go where the Jews lived. They didn't bother Jewish people. The plague, an airborne plague, only killed Egyptian animals. And the, the boils, right, that dust, those ashes came down and burst into, uh, into boils all, all over the Egyptians. 
But of course, the Jews weren't touched. That's the second group. The last group of the plagues is already we have the hail with the fire and and the and the locusts that destroyed their food system. Then it's darkness for a week. And then finally, it's the plague of the firstborn. The firstborn to survive is Pharaoh. He survives because we need Pharaoh to free the Jewish people. He goes running to look for Moses and Aaron. He decrees that the Jewish people are free to go, but we don't leave that night. We don't leave till the next morning. So we had already, the day of, we had sacrificed the sheep that we had to get idol worship out of our system and the sheep was their idol. We slaughter it. We barbecue it. Everybody knows what's going on when you barbecue. Um, and we were in our homes ready to leave. And by at, at the, and we call it midnight, but in the middle of the night, all the firstborn are killed. The Jewish people now know they're about to be freed. Um, and here comes the music. And Moses tells Pharaoh, we're not leaving now. We'll leave the next morning. And the next morning we leave Egypt. And that's part one of being free, but that's leaving Egypt. That's what the night's all about, and that's the story you have to be able to tell over. But the music is playing. I hope you enjoyed it short and sweet. Thank you, of course, I want to respond and listen, I can't do it without you. Thank you to my other production team. We have Alan, David, and Kelsey in the back. I hope I've left you with food for thought. Until next time, I'm Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. Until next time, don't forget to think about it. There's a house we can build 